What's up, Bikerimer fans? Welcome back for part three of our helmet design series. So far, we've interviewed Cali Helmets founder about safety and rotational impact designs and Laser about fit and retention systems. In this third and final installment, I interview Giro's Rob Weston about how a helmet's overall design affects everything from safety to aerodynamics to ventilation and more. It's one thing to make a helmet look good, which is something Giro does really well, but making it look good and function well while still passing all the safety tests, well, that is a little bit more challenging. Let's see how they do it. Please welcome Rob Wesson. Hey Rob, welcome to the Bike Rumor Show. Hi Kyler, glad to be here. Cool, so today, this is part three of a three-part series talking about bicycle helmets, and what I would like to talk to you about is design and, you know, like in a broad perspective from the look and the feel to, you know, how design affects changes in safety, airflow, comfort, fit, et cetera. But uh, maybe first you could just kind of tell people a little bit about you, like what's your role at Jira? What do you do? Okay, great. My current role is the vice president and general manager of the brand. So I oversee all of the engineering, R&D, marketing, sales. Prior to that role, I actually came into the company as a senior engineer. So my background is in mechanical engineering. Nice. Cool. So that, I guess, I mean, you must have a pretty high 10,000 foot view of everything that goes on there in that role. So, and then from the engineering standpoint, I imagine if somebody brings an idea to you, you can kind of quickly say yay or nay as to like whether it would even work or not. Yeah. I mean, there's a certain amount of exploration in engineering. So I would say all ideas are open for discussion. And a lot of times we have to try things. I don't think I ever shut down any ideas before we really give it the opportunity to flourish. Right. What's something that kind of at first glance might have seemed like really wild that you guys tried that, you know, like maybe one example of something where you were like, eh, I don't know, and then it did work. And then one where you're like maybe excited about, but it just it couldn't work. Uh, let's see. The the one that jumps to mind is, uh, you know, seven, eight years ago, aero road helmets really didn't exist. Right. You had kind of well ventilated, lots of vents and helmets per road. And then you had your kind of closed in time trial helmet. And we, we, you know, we noticed a trend where, you know, sprinters, for example, were looking for uh, an advantage that they could get and everything came down to arrow at that time. And so we went, you know, we've been to the wind tunnel many times and we, we spent a lot of time there, a lot of time doing CFD. And uh, I think we surprised ourselves that we didn't, when we launched the uh, air attack helmet, you know, that was a very unconventional shape for a helmet. It was very round. Yeah, a little bit polarizing. Very polarizing. Honest, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but it started something, right? It was, we were the first uh, helmet company to kind of come out with uh, this aero road category. And now every helmet brand, you know, that at least competes on the world tour has an aero road version of a helmet. You know, you even seeing those starting to evolve, you know, before the venting was minimal very strategically placed, but now we're again through CFD and wind tunnel testing, we continue to evolve that the genre of helmets and uh they, yeah. they are becoming more ventilated and much more kind of everyday riding yeah i mean they pretty much look like normal helmets now for the most part yeah yeah that tends to be how things evolve right you know you have to start with an idea you try something it's, it's the first stage and then uh then people start to jump on it and, and make it better cool so what's something you tried that you thought would be really cool but it just didn't work out oh boy um <laughs> I'll think about that one. Give, give me a little bit. All right. Yeah, we'll come back to that maybe at the end because uh, I, I think it's just, I don't know. I, I'm curious. 
So let's start kind of like top level design, just aesthetics, right? Like for me, when I, the first thing that comes to mind design, I'm thinking like the visual design of something. And, you know, Jiro has some very sleek, good looking helmets. What's kind of like when you guys first put pen to paper, what's that overall? Um, I guess what's the first thing you're looking at? Are you going with aesthetics first or is there some element of a product's design that is that first thing that goes into a sketch? Yeah, when we start a new project, the first thing we have to do is really, you know, look at the brief that has been given to us, usually from uh, product marketing. They're working really directly with our sales team and with our divisions across the world. And so we really look at why are we bringing this helmet to market? What What is the purpose? Who is the customer? What are their needs? And then we put those together, you know, into this brief. And that helps us boil down kind of the, the priorities that this uh, consumer wants. So, for example, we were looking at, say, an urban helmet, you know, for somebody who is, wants to commute back and forth to work or is mostly looking just for a recreational, you know, style in their city. That's going to be a lot different than, say, you know, our a high-end road helmet or a time trial helmet where the athlete is looking for some very specific criteria. That's really where design starts is the, the kind of the bigger picture of the customer and what they need and, and what they're looking for and maybe even what, they're, what they need, don't even know they want so our, you know our designers and engineers are creative and um you know we're all writers so we all kind of have a, a general idea of how we'd like to make something better so you know so you get some feedback from sales and marketing and you get the again feedback from our designers and engineers who are using the product and that's really where the design starts and then from there yeah i mean we i don't think many people know this but you know our full incorporated name is Giro sport design so our company was founded by an industrial designer um, who really felt that design was was hugely important in uh, products, and certainly with the uh, boarding goods products. And so our team really takes that to heart, and uh, everything that we do, you know, deserves full design workup and review. You know, we meet weekly uh, with our designers, engineers, and we're going through projects just to obviously monitor project progression, but also make sure that. It's meeting the needs of our design aesthetics that uh, we really place you know, high value on at Jiro. All right. So you guys, I, I know Jiro does snow sports helmets too, but for for these purposes, let's just stick with bike. You've got a pretty broad line of helmets, you know, from, I guess, yeah, I'm going to kind of just guess here, maybe like a 40 to $50 entry level enthusiast, whatever, just kind of general bike helmet up to, you know, a 200 plus at the top level. But there's a lot of stuff in between that. And like, what's the, I mean, when you start getting into something that's, you go over like maybe like 50 to 70 to 90 to 120 to 150 to 200, like, are there really like that many different levels of price conscious customers where there, you need something unique at each of those levels? Or could we not just get away with like, you know, like a $50 helmet, a $100 helmet, a $200 helmet? That would make things a lot nicer and easier and probably <laughs> cleaner for most of us. But uh, yeah, the reality is, is that there is these price levels. And it's interesting, depending on country, the U.S., you might be able to get away with, say, a 50, probably a 75, $100, you know, kind of $25 price increment, maybe even up to $50 price increments in the U.S. But we find usually in, in some of our European countries, they really are price segmented by like 20 euro difference. And we need to have a, an offering in almost all of those price ranges. And yes, it does create a, a lot more product, a lot more helmets. But that's how you grow a company. And that's how you, you know, when you walk into a, say a bike shop uh, as a salesperson and uh, you're talking to the buyer, 
you know, they, these, these buyers know their customers. I mean, again, they may be a, a, an urban shop or they may be, you know, located at a mountain resort. They're not going to buy all of our product, but you know, let's just pick the mountain resort uh, bike shop owner. They know who they, who are coming to the mountain to ride, say, over time on mountain bikes. And uh, they know they have some entry-level customers who are looking for, you know, a certain price point. And then they're looking at, uh, you know, that uh, mid-tier uh, rider and then that, that kind of committed enthusiast uh, expert rider. And so if we walk in and we only have, say, one helmet at one certain price point and our competitors have, you know, two or three different price points, we won't get the buy. We won't get the shelf space. And so we do have to be a full service, multiple price point helmet company. Right, right. Uh, let's talk colors for a second. So I think one thing that's really attractive about Jiro to me, you know, besides the fact that the helmets are, you know, good and they look good and all that is that you guys are able to color coordinate with gloves and shoes and even full kits at, at many of the levels, which is really cool. But I feel like it might be almost like a, in some cases, a bit of a fast fashion stuff where, you know, purple's hot, you know, one year, but then the next year it's not. How do you guys pick the colors in hopes that they'll last through, you know, as long as the shoes do or the helmet does, right? Like, you know, some people are getting four or five, six seasons out of any of this gear if they're, you know, using it even quite a bit. But, you know, trends change, fashion changes. Yes, it certainly does. Yeah, I think that that's probably one thing that maybe sets Jiro apart a bit is we've just got a super strong product graphics team led by Eli Atkins. And he, uh, you know, he's been with Jiro a very long time. And I think he has just a really superb grasp of color trends and what the consumer is looking for. You know, the reality is, is that the majority of our helmets, you know, the majority of sales of, of say, any brand's helmets are going to be kind of your black, blacks and whites and grays. You know, those account for the majority of the sales. But the problem is that if you are just a black and white brand, it's pretty monotone and you don't get any kind of real pop. You don't get anybody really excited about stuff, you know. So we try to have a good balance of color so that we're not going so over the top that we offer everything. But you have to have the black, whites, and grays, titaniums. And then you have to have four or five other kind of pop colors. And, you know, those are the ones that are that drive excitement. They may not be the helmet that people really gravitate towards, but it's the helmet that really pops at the shop. So if somebody walks into a bike shop and starts walking back to the helmet wall, you can imagine if everything's black and white and gray, it doesn't do much for the wall and, and, and the excitement. But if there's that pop purple or that pop red or whatever, there may be a consumer that really loves that. It matches the kit or the shoes they're riding that year or for a couple of years. You know, of course, we want, we want people to, to buy product and use it for a long time. But the reality is, is that there are consumers out there who, who like to change things up and are looking for something that sets them apart from the rest of the people on the group ride, for example. So that's, that's why we have to offer colors. Right. That makes sense. Uh, how do you pick the colors? Because it does seem like every year there's one dominant color. It's almost like the Pantone color of the year, right? But there seems like all of a sudden, like four or five different bike brands all launch a bike with the same color. You know, a lot of helmets come in the same color shoes. Does the industry actually get together to try and coordinate these things? Or is it just happenstance? Like, how does that happen? Yeah, there's no coordinated event um, where, where companies work together to figure out colors. It's interesting, though, because, I mean, cycling, uh, like many other outdoor sports and gear, we follow what's kind of happening in the greater consumer goods market. And of course, fashion is one of those 
genres that, you know, I think everybody looks to, you know, it, it's very out in the open. It's very publicized. You know, you can see it on TV, you can see it, see it in magazines. So, you know, certainly the sporting goods world is kind of a trickle down of what's happening in the greater kind of fashion world. And so our team is much like other brand teams where they, you know, they look at the Pantone, maybe say colors of the year, uh, they're following trends, you know, they're, they're reading up on the latest uh, stuff that's happening. We try to take a, a yearly kind of inspiration trip and the team will, will go to some locale, spend some time, you know, walking around, observing, seeing what people are doing, wearing, talking to other artists in other different fields, whether, whether it be fine art or whether it be some other product categories, seeing what they, they're seeing. You know? So there's a lot of talk going on among artists. And I say that's how we kind of come up with, a, you know, say, a color palette for the next model year or even two model years away. And, uh, and usually, you know, sometimes you have some misses. But usually we're pretty spot on, which has been really fun to see. Cool. Yeah. And you guys do some great artist series as well, which, I, you know, I know those, they must be intentionally limited in quantities because they sell out almost immediately, it seems like. But uh, they do look good. As far as design goes, like, how does that carry over to Airflow? Let's start there. You know, like you have a design that you want and then does everything go into a wind tunnel or are you doing it through CFD? Because imagine... There must be some designs that you've tried that look great and then the airflow just sucks, you know, whether it's cooling or aerodynamics or both. Yeah, airflow is is uh, one of those design elements that has, you know, I talked about this earlier, you know, th- things evolve over time. And, you know, 10, 15 years ago, when helmet companies talked about airflow, they generally talked about number of vents in a helmet. And really what we learned is number of vents don't matter at all. It's really about airflow. And that, that last word flow is the important part. Uh, in order for, for a helmet to be ventilated and actually keep your head cool, air literally has to flow into the helmet and then out of the helmet. So you've got to create kind of channeling that uh, allows air to p- basically pass over a wearer's head between you know their head or hair and uh, the inside of the helmet. We've done a lot of testing, you know, again, we're using both, both CFD and wind tunnel, real world type stuff. And, you know, we, we found pretty early on that you know, you can create these massive vents in the front of a helmet that makes the helmet look really ventilated. You know, if you put it on at the shop and look in the mirror, looks like it's going to be super ventilated. But uh, if that air has nowhere to go, if it just kind of comes in and hits the front of your head or the top of your head and there's there's nowhere for it to flow, you're really not getting airflow. You're really not getting ventilation because the air just gets stopped up and then the air starts flowing over the top of the helmet. Uh, and then your head, get, your head gets hot. Yeah, I, you know, I actually heard... It- Sorry, because um, I heard that there was actually like a high pressure zone in front, right? Because, you know, I think this came about when you guys started trying to do the aero helmets and some others is that trying to get air into the helmets on smaller vents on some of these aero designs or maybe even some of the like TT and triathlon helmets was like none of the air would actually go into those ports because, like you said, there was nowhere for it to exit. And so it would just create this little like high pressure zone in front that force the over around and I, I go, i'm kind of curious did that actually maybe even hurt aerodynamics yes it can because in aerodynamics you're trying you're trying to keep a what they call a smooth laminar flow uh, around an object and if you block up those vents then air kind of if you're trying to picture it physically air tries to flow into a vent it's not going anywhere and so then the air is then redirected out of the vent and up over the helmet and what that's then creating is uh, these little vortices of uh, swirling air 
which will actually hurt your aerodynamics. So the whole idea is, you know, any air that's that's flowing, you know, right into the vents, if that's got a straight pass through to the rear of the helmet, that's the best scenario. And then, you know, any any place on the helmet that you don't have vents, uh, you want the air to hit that and just flow smoothly over the over the uh, surface of the helmet off the back. So yeah, you can just picture, you know, as as straight a lines as possible of wind or air moving across and through a helmet, uh, the best for aerodynamics. Yeah. So how do you account for different hairstyles? Like, I mean, I've got fairly short hair and on some helmets, I can actually feel the wind kind of like ruffling the top of my, you know, the hair on the top of my head as it goes through others. I can't, even though like, it may not be that those helmets are causing me to overheat, but it's just, it's, it's interesting me the difference in feel. But then I also wonder like, okay, so if the hair on the top of my head is like, you know, maybe like an inch and a quarter, inch and a half long, is that blocking some of that flow and then ended up hurting my aerodynamics? Yeah, it can. That's why you see athletes who will, you know, who maybe aren't tied to a, a helmet sponsor, thinking a lot, of, a lot of triathletes, for example, you know, they'll go to the wind tunnel and they'll test four or five helmets. And uh, they're going to want the helmet that creates less amount of drag, you know, has better, you know, watt performance for them. But yeah, it will it will depend on on hairstyle. At sometimes it will depend on your position on the bike. You know how sometimes the position of like say if you're on your TT bars, you know, are your arms out wide? Are they narrow? How low can you get your chest? And then how does the airflow say over around your shoulders? And so you see athletes, you know, will try multiple helmets and uh, and then decide, you know, based on the data that one helmet is better than others. Uh, but your question specifically about you know hairstyles. That's a, that's a fair point. Most of what you see, say, in the pro peloton on the men's side, obviously, is, a, is pretty short hair. And so for them, they're, they're going to probably get the most airflow, the most ventilation. But you have somebody who has, you know, larger hairstyle, more hair. Those can fill up uh, the inside of the helmet more. Um, those can block some of the channeling and, and, you know, vent channels. They would probably run a little bit hotter and uh, maybe not be as, as aerodynamic. Right. One more on airflow, and then uh, there's actually kind of a, a different tact we can take on hairstyles for in terms of like safety and fit. But so airflow, then is there? You know, I'm just thinking like a a, a standard road rider where aerodynamics are going to matter way more than say mountain biking. For the average road rider, is there a certain angle of helmet or head tilt that you guys optimize for? When we are studying aerodynamic performance, we do testing at multiple angles. So not only do are we looking at you know, say head tilt. And, and really, when we, we look at the way a rider, say, for watching, you know, a pro race, much of the time that the rider is uh, riding along, their head is in a very kind of neutral, relaxed position. And we find that to be about 30 degrees forward from the vertical. And then you get a rider who's in a break, who's, you know, gone off solo, you know, who's riding really hard. A lot of times they'll put their head down. You know, so they'll actually be looking down at their bars for a bit just to kind of relax their neck uh, because they're going so hard. And, you know, we, we see that measurement about 60 degrees from the vertical. So those are the two positions that we test helmets in. And then subsequent to that, you know, when we are, when we are looking at uh, aerodynamic performance, not only are we looking at wind coming at the rider directly in front of the rider, but we look at what we call yaw angles. So we take measurements at uh, that zero yaw, which is straight ahead, and then at uh, 5, 10, 15, and sometimes up to 20 degrees off the, the normal. And that just accounts for 
really what a rider is going to see, you know, if they're out on a TT course or even on a road course, you're going to get prevailing, you know, some side winds and such. And we find that aerodynamic performance of a helmet can change within that 20 degree uh, off center uh, axis. Yeah. How much are we talking? You know, like, I don't even know what, what a typical drag number would be for helmets straight on. But I mean, are we talking about, because I don't ever feel like there's enough wind where I notice it like pushing my head to one side or feel like my head is creating this little sail on the top of my body. I mean, is it enough to where it must be enough to be worth all of this R and D, but give me some numbers. I don't have the exact numbers in front of me, but you know, when we were doing say our testing for our uh, arrowhead time trial helmet, the difference between an arrow, the arrowhead helmet and our, you know, our high end road helmet, you know, the ether very ventilated, Still has some, some arrow characteristics, but certainly not as arrow as the, the arrowhead. Uh, and again, I'm going off memory here, but you know, in a race, say say you were in a 25 mile time trial. You know, the difference between wearing the highly ventilated ether versus wearing the arrowhead is probably up to about 45 seconds to a minute hmm. of just the savings that you'd have just by wearing the different helmet. So aerodynamics does matter, um, and you're obviously seeing this. It matters because, you know, riders are riding aerodynamic bikes now, aerodynamic cranks, uh, aerodynamic, you know, clothing. Every little piece gives you that advantage. And when time counts, you definitely want it. Yeah, definitely. Especially if that's how you make your living. Back to hairstyles for a second there. I want to talk in terms of like comfort and, and I think more importantly, like fit, because fit is so tied so closely to how safe the helmet is actually going to be when it's on your head. But how do you deal with hairstyles like afros or dreadlocks or something else with people with much bigger hair? Yeah, so people with much bigger hair. I mean, essentially, when you when you're say measuring your your head to find out which size helmet you you know you should be in, you know, you generally put a tape uh, a soft tape measure around your head. You know, top of your eyebrows, over the top of your ears, you know, around the back of your head. You know, you're really trying to measure your your head circumference. But as you said, if you've got a lot of hair, um, afros, dreadlocks, you know, that's going to expand. You know, that circumference. And so you just need to find, you just need to make sure you have a helmet that can accommodate, you know, the extra hair. And so the key point is just finding a helmet that fits you correctly. You know, so helmets have a size range in our three and four size helmets where you've got, you know, an actual small, medium, large, or extra large helmet. You've got a size range within that, you know. So, for example, a medium helmet will fit a head circumference from about 54 centimeters to 58 or 59 centimeters. So it has a fairly large circumference uh, variance there. And that's why most of our helmets come with a fit system, you know, that, that small little dial on the back with a cradle. And, you know, so if you are, for example, if, you're, if you fall within that medium size range and you're on the low end, so say, you know, that medium size range starts at 54 centimeters and you are right at 54, you know, you're going to put that helmet on and you're going to have to crank down that fit system, you know, almost all the way to get that helmet to fit, you know, right on your head and keep it where it needs to be versus rotating, say, back off the, t- the back of your head. And the same thing goes if you're on the, on the high end. If you're, if you're a 58 or 59 and you put that helmet on, you know, you might only get one or two clicks of that fit system. And that, that'll be just enough to kind of, you know, snug up the helmet to keep it perfectly aligned on your head. People with larger hair, you know, need, definitely need to take that into consideration. Yeah, I think with dreadlocks, you know, they're, it, it's a lot harder to compress those than it is like an afro. Like an afro, you could put 
something over the hair to kind of like push it down so that it, you know, I'm just, I'm thinking like in my head, I'm talking to people with like substantially larger afros than normal, I guess. Right. But um, like, that's a lot of hair to fit into there. And I imagine you have to, at some point, there have to be some recommendations to like compress your hair because you don't want like a huge gap between the inside surface of the helmet and your head because that allows for a lot of movement that, I mean, the whole point of the helmet, I think, is to stop that impact speed. And with a lot of movement there, it sort of goes against the whole point of a helmet, right? Yes. I mean, uh, yeah, it could be a problem, problematic if you definitely had a way too big helmet on your head. Because, uh, you know, the, depending on the hairstyle, some hair is, is more compressible than others. All right. Just curious. Um, let's go to safety in terms of design. And we can tie this into fit however you'd like. But I'm thinking like externally, you know, you see some helmets and, you know, Jiro has some other brands have some that have almost like little spoilers or fins like little flares that kind of stick off the back of the helmet and they look fantastic but i wonder from a safety standpoint is that you know like if you were to land to where that point contacted the ground would that not almost act like a cantilever that could kind of like pull or push your head in a certain direction a little more forcefully than if you didn't have such a feature yeah and i think that that's that is probably a true statement you know the the farther out you know, uh, a helmet design is from the head. Yes, it does create a bit of a lever, uh, you know, a lever effect. And we want to try to reduce that as much as possible. So that's why I think you've seen over the last 10 or 15 years, helmet shapes have uh, evolved to be not so, quote unquote, pointy, especially off the back of the helmet. And uh, they become a lot more round and smoother to help reduce any uh, possible rotational effect that you may have if you crash, say, and it hit that point. You know, that's also why we really have invested in rotational energy management system to help reduce that energy rotation or energy velocity that can happen when you know, if you hit your head at an angle. Right. So obviously shape has something to do with the overall safety of a helmet, which I don't know that they actually test for that in the CPSC or um, EN testing at all, do they? Testing for shape? Is that what your question? Well, I mean, not like actually like measuring the shape and say yes, this shape conforms. But it's have you noticed any particular helmet shapes? You know, all else being equal, like the shape of the helmet has an impact on the rating. You know, the, the safety rating or score that it gets. Uh, yeah, certainly it can. But you know, if you really wanted to, for example, create a helmet with some standing shapes say off the back of the helmet kind of make you know think old school going back to the early 2000s or something you could design a helmet that uh you know if you were to crash and hit the these extended shapes they would just break off you could make that shape be uh you know a weaker material or have a a weak link in it so you know it looks great design wise but if you were actually you know crash you know the main part of the helmet is what's protecting you this is just you know this is just a design feature and that, that could be made to be a breakaway part. There's ways to design a helmet to get a certain look, but not affect the safety of it. Right. But generally, if you're trying to make, you know, an overall, the, the safest helmet, yeah, the, the closer to the head and the, the rounder, smoother uh, designs are, are the easiest way to get there. Cool. What are, you know, maybe some design features on helmets that aren't so obvious to the average rider that you guys have found to be super important to the overall function, safety, fit, comfort, era, whatever that is about the helmet that you wanted to accomplish that 
if I were to look at it, I'd be like, I wouldn't even notice it. But you guys are like, oh, no, this is super important and cool. Yeah, the first thing I'd tell listeners is that, you know, the, the best helmet out there for you is the helmet that fits you the best and the one you're actually going to wear. You know, so each brand, you know, has a, they don't deviate a lot, but they can affect a uh, wearer's, you know, comfort. Each brand has their own kind of head form shape. And, you know, sometimes we've heard it before. Some people say, well, I'm a, you know, my head seems to fit better in a bell helmet than a Giro helmet or vice versa or other brands. And so, you know, depending on your head shape, you know, you may fit, quote unquote, fit better in, in one helmet brand over another. So that's the first thing, the best fitting helmet in, in it's going to be comfortable for you and you're going to want to wear it and it doesn't, you know, doesn't have hot spots, not too heavy. You know, your neck doesn't get tired after a long ride. You know, all those go into the, 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 uh, the buying decision that the, the consumer should have. Again, going back to your question about, you know, are there other things uh, other than fit and comfort? What are your priorities in, in your helmet? Obviously, all helmets are created to provide safety uh, should you crash. That's number one. But then what's number two, three, and four on your priorities? And, uh, and then, you know, look for helmets that are going to meet those priorities for you. Cool. All right. It's time to circle back to that question you needed some more time on. So is there something you guys were working on that you thought for sure would be great and you just no matter what you tried, couldn't make it work? Nothing on the helmet side is jumping out at me at this moment. I can mention, say, like on the goggle side, so in snow goggles, you know, we've been trying to figure out, you know, when you have, you have eyewear, you know, sun condition or the weather condition in a day can change. So, for example, if you're you can go, going skiing, you know, you could have a cloudy morning and a bright sun, you know, clear blue sky in the afternoon or vice versa. How do you offer experience to a user where they aren't, they aren't always having to switch out lenses? You know, so we've gone down the path of looking at uh, kind of electrochromatic uh, lenses, for example. And, uh, you know, adding electronics to components can, can, be, can be tricky. And uh, we've been playing with this idea for a long time. And I would say we, we don't have a perfect, we don't have a, we don't have a product on the market yet. Some things look promising, we try it. And, uh, you know, while there are some products out in the market these days that we've tried, we don't like how they perform. You know, there's some products out there right now that, automatically change when it detects, you know, say a bright sun versus a thing of not, not brightness. And uh, what we found is you can kind of get like a strobe light effect and that can be really mm-hmm. annoying. You know, you're, say you're skiing along, you're skiing through trees and you're getting kind of sun and then no sun and then sun, it can be kind of disoriented. So, you know, that, that's just one example of, of us trying to solve a problem and uh, experimenting with, with different ways to get there. But, uh, you know, we haven't gotten there yet. Yeah, I know what you're talking about because it's like an instant, instant change. It's not like a photochromatic, photochromatic or photochromic. I'm not even sure what the right word is there. Um, lens where, you know, it takes a few seconds to darken or, or lighten um, right. you know, the electronic ones. It, it is. It's almost like a shutter. It's like on or off instantly. Yeah. And then, you know, it can be very disoriented. You know, I think that there's some cycling sunglasses out there as well that do the same thing. And Yeah. I mean, if you're riding along and it, it, you get this kind of shutter effect going on. Uh, yeah, that's not a great experience. And, but yet, you know, there, there are some other uh, glasses out there that, you know, the transition between the tints may take 20 seconds. That seems too long, right? So where's that sweet spot? And uh, I, don't, I don't think anybody's kind of conquered that just yet. 
You know, talking about sunglasses and goggles kind of actually made me think of another question that comes to design. You know, there's there's such a wide variety of sunglasses out there. I mean, I think goggles have a pretty standard way of interfacing with, you know, a mountain bike helmet or a full face helmet with the strap. You know, the straps all seem to be about the same distance off the face and the same thickness or I mean, uh, width and all that. But sunglasses, you know, working those around helmet straps, like there's definitely some combinations that work better than others. And I know Jiro used to do sunglasses and you don't anymore. How do you do you try and work around different sunglass designs at all? Or do you just assume the sunglass designs are going to work around the helmet straps? No, I mean, we have to, you know, certainly on helmets where we, we know consumers and athletes who are wearing, you know, who would buy these helmets are also the consumer and athletes who are, you know, buying certain types of sunglasses. We don't say our, our helmets are compatible, you know, with kind of sunglass docking with every sunglass brand, but we have a, an arsenal of, of the latest sunglasses that uh, these folks are wearing and uh, they all get tested on our new designs to make sure that, uh, you know, they're, they're basically compatible both when the sunglasses are being worn, you know, on the face so that the arms aren't, you know, say hitting, hitting the temples of the helmet. Um, and then when the rider wants to take them off and kind of dock them in vents, you know, we have to make sure that the majority of sunglasses are going to find a, a secure place, you know, for the rider to put them up in the helmet. All right. Awesome. Well, Rob, I appreciate your time. It's a lot of good info. And uh, yeah, I guess people want to see what Jiro's got. It's just Jiro.com, right? That is correct. Yeah. It was great talking to you, Tyler. And uh, yeah, I appreciate the time. Yeah, man. Thank you. All right. Talk to you later. Hey, thanks for listening to part three of our series on bicycle helmet designs. If you haven't already, hit subscribe to the Bike Mirror podcast on your favorite player so you don't miss the next installments. And check out the catalog of interviews we've already published. There's a ton of great stuff in there that's a bit of the break from our normal tech-heavy, product-focused coverage on the website. And if you like this, could you tap that button on your app to give us a quick five-star rating? And a quick review, that is the currency of podcasts and it really helps us reach more people and grow this thing more and more to get great guests for you. Thanks and until next time, keep the rubber side down.